0: G'day and welcome to episode 35 of The Other Side Australia, your weekly shortcut to the news and views you need to know from an Aussie classical liberal perspective. This week, an Aussie dad of two dies of COVID in India, locked out of his own country. Australia's tough laws prohibiting doctors from using alternative controversial COVID treatments get some international attention. We'll explore the case of Australia's last political leader who was brave enough to really take on the bureaucracy, It seems the people still like him a lot, even if the political and media establishment don't. More reasons this week why ScoMo won't be opening borders up anytime soon. And in the second half of the show today, we'll update you on the Craig McLaughlin story and we'll bring you a special explainer on the tragedy of the conflict in Israel. It's a big show this week. Let's go. This week, Queensland, Australia got a mention but not in a good way on one of the new shows of America's highest rating news commentator Tucker Carlson
1: take a look but you're also describing a society whose biggest institutions are not capable of doing science anymore i mean that's what you just that's the story you just told science being you know the honest evaluation of reality and the retesting of one's assumption i mean that's science correct it's correct and tucker it's worldwide something is up listen to
2: this Queensland, Australia, you've probably been there. April, they put on the books as a law, as a law. If a doctor attempts to help a patient with COVID-19 with hydroxychloroquine, that doctor will be put in jail for six months. What? Yes, in April, they put it on the books. Okay. Why? Something is up. If you look at the TGA, let's let's not fry the US agencies. Let's look at the TGA, the FDA equivalent in Australia. And Australia is interesting. They've been kind of spared of COVID-19. They've been in these draconian lockdowns. They have this huge, susceptible population. They're all distributed. They've been in fear for 14 months. The TGA has some guidelines for COVID-19. It must have two dozen recommendations. Don't use hydroxychloroquine. Don't use ivermectin. Don't use steroids. Don't use anticoagulants. Don't use... They list everything you should not do. It's like, what shouldn't you do? Net answer, nothing.
1: Wait, okay. So COVID-19 became known to the West in January of 2020. So that was one year and four months ago, okay? So how could, with such a short period of time, the health regulators of Australia know to the point where they codified it in a regulation that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective therapy against COVID-19, like how could that be known? It couldn't be known, correct? It couldn't be known, and in fact, uh,
2: there are pieces of the timeline that are suggesting that something is very wrong going on.
0: Okay, but who is this guy? I mean, yeah, must be some quack, right?
1: For viewers who are wondering, who is this guy? Is he just some random guy who's claiming to be a doctor? Look him up. Peter McCullough, and I think you'll be quite satisfied after your Google search that you have the authority to say the things that you're saying.
2: I testified under oath. I have 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm the president of a major medical society. I'm the editor of two major journals. I've had headed up 24 day safety monitoring boards in major drug trials and stopped drug trials early for uh, safety reasons.
0: Oh, he's not some quack. So maybe he just made a mistake. I mean, surely Queensland wouldn't have outlawed the prescription of a drug that's relatively harmless and very cheap and may not work for COVID, but Hey, if some people want to give it a try, then that's their right in a free country. I mean, especially if their doctor prescribes it, because doctors can make up their own minds in a free country, right? No. Queensland did, in fact, outlaw it. I, Dr. Jeanette Young, Chief Health Officer, reasonably believe it is necessary to give the following directions pursuant to the powers under the Public Health Act. The purpose is to prohibit the prescribing, dispensing or supply of hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of a person unless it is done in accordance with this direction. Following that, there's a whole bunch of rules about how you can't prescribe it for COVID, basically. And then at the end, this. Maximum penalty, 100 penalty units or six months imprisonment. Okay, so the American doctor was right and he didn't stop there. I'm
2: telling you, I have no agenda, but I am deeply concerned that something has gone off the rails in the world. It involves science. It involves the medical literature. It involves a regulatory uh, response. It involves populations kept in fear and in isolation and despair. Okay, so you've uh,
1: this is upsetting, but it's also fascinating. I think you've alluded a couple times to something being up. I think is the phrase that you used. Can you can you put a Slightly finer point on that. Do you believe that NGOs, the enormous nonprofits that have a lot of sway, it seems like, in the public health arena, are exercising influence over COVID policy in the direction that you're describing? Is it that? Is it some international regulatory body? Is it WHO? I mean, like, what is this, do you think?
2: That's really gonna be the, um, the goal of investigative reporters to figure this out.
1: Well, no wonder.
0: If we have unelected public health officials like Dr Young empowered to threaten prison sentences on doctors for being, well, doctors, things are getting weird. If your business or job depends on overseas clients and travel, or if you have international family and friends that you'd like to see or you have to see, you could forget about the federal government of Scott Morrison representing your interests anytime soon. And who could blame them? The majority of Australians who don't have international connections couldn't give a stuff about you. The death toll of Australians in India hit two this week because they couldn't come home to get proper COVID care. If we had the right systems in place, it'd be zero risk to bring them home and they may have survived. Now, Two kids have lost their dad at the age of just 47. A senior executive of Trina Solar Australia, Assistant Director Govind Kant, had returned to India for personal reasons just last month. The Australian newspaper reports the company described the father of two as a dear friend and a valued colleague. Words may not suffice to express the heartfelt sorrow that the team at Trina Solar fears for the passing of our exceptional colleague and friend. Our thoughts and prayers are with Govind and his family, including his wife and two daughters. He was described by another colleague as, quote, a legend in the Australian solar industry and a good bloke to boot. I was talking with him a few weeks ago, he said, and I'm struggling to comprehend that he's no longer with us. A 59-year-old Australian permanent resident who died in Delhi was the first Aussie to die in India following the government ban on flights home. I'm an Australian citizen and highly disappointed to be one today, that man's daughter wrote on Facebook. She said, what nation disowns their own citizens? It's a matter of wonder for the entire world. There you go. But a lot of us just don't care, right? This week, a news poll conducted for the Australian newspaper showed that 73% of voters back a Fortress Australia international border policy and believe the international borders should remain closed until at least the middle of next year. Now that's an overwhelming number. If you're a cricketer, however, the story is different, but it's not the cricketers we should be criticising for being allowed their basic human right to return home to their own country safely. It's the government we should be criticising for not enabling all Australians to come home to be safely quarantined in an appropriate facility and to be treated properly if they're sick. 73% of Australia would disagree with me on that, apparently. So how have we got to this? Basically, I think it's because we don't teach economics in school well enough. People think money comes from thin air and they think the essential services needed to help the poor and the sick don't come from money because money is evil. Money in our system simply represents value created, whether it's by hard work, smart thinking, taking risks with investing, or the extraction and use of natural resources. Somebody somewhere creates value and earns money for the value created for someone else. That's what free market liberalism is all about, and that's why it's the most efficient system mankind's ever known, and why most communist countries have now adopted that economic model. But don't take my word for it. The proof is in the pudding. Just look at China and Russia post-socialism versus back when they had a fully government-controlled economy trying to make everything equal and fair. But I'm getting off the point. The point is 73% of Aussies don't seem to understand that a lot of our livelihood depends on what international Aussies are doing. So before you say who gives the stuff, you need to be totally sure that your job isn't somehow dependent on international trade, international investment, and international engagement. And in today's globalized world, chances are 90% of the jobs in this country do depend on that. Now those who might be thinking doesn't affect me I'm out of the workforce now need to remember that the investment income returns that you're getting or the government payments and subsidies that are supporting you are very dependent upon the international revenues that this country gets. So it's all well and good to say fortress Australia bring it on when we've had job keeper and job seeker to cushion the blow of covid-19. You might find it's a totally different thing when you don't have that. So if we continue to incentivise our Liberal and Labour politicians to keep borrowing money from the future and going with policies that are bad for the country but very good for getting re-elected, they're going to keep delivering. Nobody wants to lose power. And who wants to do a Campbell-Newman and get slaughtered at the next election because you tried to do the right thing by running the government responsibly and keeping the budget in line? Nobody. So it's up to us, Australia. And right now, we're incentivising our pollies to keep borrowing from our kids' future and setting us up for massive interest rate expenses that we have to pay right now. And that's just the economic impact of Fortress Australia. Never mind the civil liberties and our freedom to choose as individuals to come and go from our own country as we wish. And never mind the health things. Speaking of Campbell Newman, the Liberal National Party of Queensland have decided to let him actively back into the party after treating him like a pariah for the past six years. Now this is an important case study for all Australians in all states because Campbell Newman represents our most recent version of a populist politician who really took risks and tried to shake up our sleepy, overweight bureaucracy. And he paid the price. The former Lord Mayor of Brisbane won a state election in Queensland to become Premier in 2012 by an absolute landslide.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all Queenslanders this evening for voting for change.
0: But then he promptly lost again in 2015.
2: My political career is over. It is over.
3: tough, you're going to have to wear that
0: one. Here's why this is also important for all Australians. Campbell is a social moderate and economic conservative. When he won government, he immediately set about trying to cut down the waste in the public service and bring the bureaucracy down to a size that was what Queensland could actually afford, rather than what the Labour Party and the unions wanted. His greatest sin? Doing this quickly can do Campbell quickly became please don't do any more Campbell, as the public labor and the unions turned on him for reducing public servant numbers by fourteen, thousand. He tried to run a responsible ship financially and he moved fast to just get things done like a former army officer with an engineering degree might do. you see, No one wants to reward any politician that stands up for good money management and ends the nice little game the bureaucracy has going on of taking value away from the economy and spending it on stuff that they want to spend it on. Now I'm not a radical libertarian, I believe in small government. We need government for basic services that the free market fails in delivering. And we need it to set the rules that the free market has to play by. But we don't need government the size it is in Australia. You could cut 10% off the budget and staffing of every department in Australia, except defence perhaps, and you'd notice no differences in the services if they were run efficiently and well. What you would notice is a reduction in debt, lower taxes and an economic and jobs boom in the private sector. And then we'd have those real wage rises we've been wanting. But I digress again. Back to Campbell and why this matters as a case study for Aussie politics. The Queensland Labour Party have been campaigning for six years on the back of the idea that you don't want Campbell Newman back again. And, like a bunch of dopey scaredy-cats, the LNP has been trying to distance itself from him instead of defending what he was trying to do as unpopular, but actually what was really needed at the time. And still, not everyone's happy about Newman's return to a role as an LNP trustee. When it was announced, there was no shortage of loyal LNP party members happy to bleat to their media mates about how upset they were. Good to see that the lessons about public displays of disunity from last year's dreadful defeat were well learned. The current mob don't want Campbell back in the fold because he speaks his mind. But here are some facts about Newman that all LNP members, all Queenslanders and all Aussies should know. Newman won with an unprecedented majority in 2012 to bring the LNP to power for the first and only time for the last 23 years. Even when he lost in 2015, he still had 41% of the primary vote. No Queensland LNP leader has achieved that level of primary vote since. And get this, Labour's Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland Premier, has also never hit it. She's never won an election with a primary vote above 40%. The LNP should be united in its defence of Newman's record. He overhauled the public health system, which led to the best emergency room performances and shortest surgery waiting times in the nation, something the Palaszczuk government and other Labour governments like McGowan in WA are greatly struggling with right now. Newman also cracked down on bikie gangs and organised crime, a problem that many politicians just dump in the too-hard basket, and he reduced crime by 20%. The Queensland LNP and the Federal Liberal Party need to wake up to the reality that Campbell Newman was an unconventional politician and that that was a good thing. That he's just the kind of leader we need in our political sphere. And he's the kind of person the Liberal Party needs, because he's someone who isn't afraid to put the state and its people before his own personal political gain, and to stand up for what's right, even if that means upsetting the bureaucrats, and even if it means upsetting his own party colleagues from time to time. Now here's the really big lesson for classical liberals and conservatives everywhere. Despite being dumped on from his own party, this was the result of a poll that was conducted by the Courier-Mail newspaper. 70% of a sample size that got up to 2,500 respondents think that Newman's return will help the party. That's not a totally legitimate poll because it's an incoming sample, not a random outgoing sample. But if it's even partly true, the Liberal National Party in Queensland seriously needs to rethink its position on one Mr. Campbell Newman. So the other side, Australia is going to do a little research of its own in coming weeks to find out if this gap between public perception and the political class's perception actually holds up. Because this has implications for all of Australia in terms of whether we should be listening more to the average person and less to the chatterboxes in media and politics. We'll keep you posted on that in the weeks ahead. So watch out for it. In any case, the LNP in Queensland and the Liberal Party nationally shouldn't be ostracising Newman. It should be actively courting him to return to the front line of the party in some capacity. Although I don't think a successful businessman like him, who's already been through the ringer once, would be up for another round of punishment at the hands of the Aussie political machine. But this is why this lesson and this case study is so important in Australia. We will never attract top talent into our political leadership if we don't give them the benefit of the doubt and ensure them more than just a few years to execute their plans. Our major political parties seem to be more interested than they should be in maintaining a closed shop and keeping new talent that might threaten incumbents at bay rather than putting the interests of the nation and the party first like a corporation would and go out and search for the best talent. I'm not sure how we fix that problem. UK style fixed five-year terms might be a good start But it definitely needs fixing.
3: In more news, The People's Project
0: is doing news without seriousness. What? If you want to see
3: evidence of this crazy show, watch The People's Project. 7.30 on Fridays, The Discernible Network.
0: Australian teen heartthrob and actor Craig McLaughlin has proven to us all this week that if you're accused of sexual assault in modern Australia, you are never not guilty, even if you're found to be not guilty by a court, even if you show video evidence of the media coming after you deliberately by coaching complainants while they're interviewing them and not challenging them as journalists always should do. You're still stuffed if you're a white bloke, basically, the reaction of many in the mainstream media and on social media to the McLaughlin documentary on Channel 7 on Sunday night was a disgraceful pile of proof that many Australians still do not respect the rule of law or the presumption of innocence. You know, acting is a weird business. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a musical about sexual extroversion and hypersexualisation. Every actor knows, whether they want to admit it or not, that the backstage dynamics and environment can be a bit sexual especially when involved in a production like that. The line between on and off stage antics gets blurred and the allegations against McLaughlin are simply not serious enough in that context to warrant all this fuss. Here are the charges he was found not guilty of in December. I repeat, not guilty of. Straddling one complainant on the couch in the green room, kissing her neck and stopping after he asked, too much, did I linger too long? And she said yes. He stopped. Hugging another complainer for too long at the end of a line of cast members. Kissing an actress on stage in what she described as a tongue kiss as they acted out a scene. He denied that one. Tickling another actress from her foot to her inner thigh as she was on a platform at the top half of her torso was visible to the audience. I assume that was a directing point. I don't know. Tracing the line of an actress's pubic area with his finger while they were in bed on stage before she swatted his hand away grabbing an actor's face by the jaw and throwing her face to one side. Okay, these are all things that he was found not guilty of doing. The magistrate acquitted him, but also described the four women as brave and honest witnesses. In new allegations that the ABC aired this week, he's been accused of putting his hand on the bottom of an actress during a scene on a TV show and kissing another actress on that show without consent in the car park after a shoot. At the very worst, Craig McLaughlin may be a self-entitled egomaniac with a hyper-attraction to women who needs to learn some privacy boundaries and to control himself. But he's a man of another era, and he was used to being mobbed by women when he was younger. I wonder how many of them overstepped the boundaries a little in those days. You know, human sexuality is a complex thing, and our nanny state approach to it is getting very, very troubling. This just isn't go to court stuff unless you're out to get the guy and it's a witch hunt. But the ABC continues despite what was revealed in the doco about how they coached earlier witnesses. It's unbelievable stuff. So in case you missed it, here it is.
3: I imagine one issue that you might have is that you look and sound really passionate and genuine. But some people will say, well, he's an actor. He's acting.
4: <laughs> and let's just turn it around and so are those women.
1: So essentially the, the,
4: what's of most concern is the power imbalance yeah. in this situation. So I think what has inhibited our action previously and, and what's concerned us the most now is, is his... No, it's not mm. like that...
3: Hang on, do so get there. I can, I can. Oh, We can yeah. hear them. Okay. We're good?
4: We're on. What is it that stops women from complaining in these circumstances, do you think? I think in our case, it's, it's their star power, it's their influence that makes us fearful, makes us feel as though our voices won't be heard. Short enough? Too uh, you yeah, no. Maybe even just something like, obviously, you know, like, you know, he's a big star. He yeah. has clout. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we wouldn't be listened to or we didn't think we'd be listened to. Okay. Okay. I guess we all felt that his star power and his influence was more valuable and more important than us.
0: Okay, so let's just pause there for a sec. Last week, I showed you how the ABC 730 report reconstructed a non-story about a university professor who was made to feel uncomfortable by Liberal MP Andrew Lemming. There was simply nothing there, but they made it look like something, carefully crafting the reality to fit their preconceived narrative. This is very serious stuff, folks, because the ABC carries the reputation of being the nation's premier current affairs show coming out of our national broadcaster that we all have to pay for. And they're a hugely influential organization that shapes our culture massively. If they're crafting a reality rather than just presenting reality as faithfully as they can, then they're behaving as a propaganda organization, not a news outlet. This is not news. It's docudrama reality TV.
5: And I don't think it's fair that he gets to go out there every night and soak up everything that he gets to soak up and have all these performers giving him all their energy so that he looks great.
2: I went
6: off on a bit of a tangent then. I'm sorry. No, you were. I get really fired up. That was absolutely brilliant.
0: You were awesome. Oh, you were brilliant, darling. Marvelous. That's exactly what we wanted. We can now drive our cultural Marxist critical theory, third wave feminist fictional narrative about all women being victims and all men being monsters just beautifully with our little TV show produced at taxpayers' expense. This is an outrage, folks. And if this doesn't bring the ABC to massive reform and a huge overhaul, nothing will. That so many Australians can't see through this amazes me. But I suspect those in the mainstream media suggesting that the Channel 7 documentary was met with criticism and outrage are themselves not listening to the silent majority again. In any case, this government needs to stop funding this this monstrosity of left-wing lunacy And do what we elected it to do in 2019 as classical liberals and conservatives, and listen to us, the voters. We need a national broadcaster that provides basic essential services, straight news, parliamentary coverage, some coverage and support for industries like the arts that otherwise might flounder commercially maybe. But we don't need it pumping out fictional TV and lying to the public by dressing it up as news. Enough. Reform the ABC now. Otherwise, it will keep on creating a culture that will inevitably mean the Liberal Party will not only lose this election, but every election forevermore. The Israel-Palestine conflict is a very confusing one. Much more confusing than the kids on the left who automatically just support whoever appears to be the little guy in any conflict without much thought or analysis would make it out to be. This is how Channel 9's Ben Avery reported on things on Monday. From the rubble, a survivor.
5: Six year old Susie had been trapped beneath her family's home for seven hours, feared dead. Now she's safely in hospital, hand in hand with her father, but with grief written all over her face. Her father explains that her mother and all four of her siblings did not survive. This is what has caused the heartache, a pre-dawn Israeli bombardment. And Frankly, uh, if Hamas thought that they could just fire on our rockets and then sit back and enjoy uh, immunity, uh, that's false. Gaza continues to fight, launching another barrage of rockets, one striking the southern city of Ashkelon, damaging a synagogue and setting cars ablaze. The United Nations Secretary-General describing the hostilities as utterly appalling. Fighting must stop. US President Biden says his administration is continuing to work towards calm. Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve
0: to live in safety and security. Retired British naval officer Colonel Richard Kemp gave this explanation of the dispute to Sky News Australia this week.
3: The reality of the situation in in Israel and in Gaza is that a few days ago, uh, the, the Hamas and Palestinian and Hamad Jihad, the terrorist forces that control Gaza, um, launched an intense uh, bombardment of rockets at Israeli civilian population. And they've so far, since so you know in the last three or four days, they've fired over 2,000 rockets at the Israeli civilians. Most of them, I'm happy to say, have been taken down by the Israelis' Iron Dome missile defence system. Some have got through and, unfortunately, some Israelis have been killed. Um, And, you know, cities like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem itself and other places throughout parts of Israel have have been hit by these missiles. Meanwhile, of course, the IDF have been striking back very, very hard and with precise strikes to take down the Hamas military infrastructure, doing their best, of course, to avoid killing innocent civilians. Um, that there have been many civilians killed in Gaza, but that's inevitable when you're dealing with a terrorist organisation that that hides behind human shields and makes that the central focus of its military strategy to try and get Israel to kill their own civilians.
0: Retired British naval officer Colonel Richard Kemp there. The colonel also told Sky News that there's no doubt who is backing Hamas.
3: Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, are funded and equipped by Iran. They are basically an Iranian proxy. And they are carrying out this action at the behest of Iran. They obviously want to do it themselves as well. But Iran is behind it, pulling the strings. Um, and it, it, is, it is Iranian-supplied missiles and, and material to make missiles inside Gaza that have been, enabled Hamas to launch this overwhelming um, bombardment against Israel. So to
0: understand more about the history, I decided to look for a couple of videos. I felt the safest way to understand it and to avoid too much bias in the way the history was presented might be to watch one video produced by the left and one produced by the right. So let's start with the left. This video was produced by the US left-wing news site, Vox.
6: Conflict's mostly about two groups of people who claim the same land. And it really only goes back about a century to the early 1900s. Around then, the region along the eastern Mediterranean we now call Israel-Palestine, been under Ottoman rule for centuries, was religiously diverse, including mostly Muslims and Christians, also a small number of Jews, who lived generally in peace. It was changing in two important ways. First, more people in the region were developing a sense of being not just ethnic Arabs, but Palestinians, a distinct national identity. At the same time, not so far away in Europe, More Jews were joining a movement called Zionism, which said that Judaism was not just a religion, but a nationality, one that deserved a nation of its own. And after centuries of persecution, many believed a Jewish state was their only way of safety and saw their historic homeland in the Middle East as their best hope for establishing it. In the first decades of the 20th century, tens of thousands of European Jews moved there. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and British and French empires carved up the Middle East the British taking control of a region it called the British Mandate for Palestine. At first, the British allowed Jewish immigration. But as more Jews arrived, settling into farming communities, tension between Jews and Arabs grew. Both sides committed acts of violence, and by the 1930s, the British began limiting Jewish immigration. In response, Jewish militias formed to fight both the local Arabs and to resist British rule. Then came the Holocaust leading many more Jews to flee Europe for British Palestine and galvanizing much of the world in support of a Jewish state. In 1947, as sectarian violence between Jews and Arabs there grew, the United Nations approved a plan to divide British Palestine into two separate states. One for Jews, Israel, and one for Arabs, Palestine. The city of Jerusalem, where Jews, Muslims, and Christians all have holy sites, was to become a special international zone. The plan was meant to give Jews a state, to establish Palestinian independence and to end the sectarian violence that the British could no longer control. The Jews accepted the plan and they declared independence as Israel. But Arabs throughout the region saw the UN plan as just more European colonialism trying to steal their land. Many of the Arab states, who had just recently won independence themselves, declared war on Israel in an effort to establish a unified Arab Palestine where all of British Palestine had been. The new state of Israel won the war. But in the process, they pushed well past their borders under the UN plan, taking the western half of Jerusalem and much of the land that was to have been part of Palestine. They also expelled huge numbers of Palestinians from their homes, creating a massive refugee population, whose descendants today number about 7 million. At the end of the war, Israel controlled all of the territory except for Gaza, which Egypt controlled, and the West Bank, named because it's west of the Jordan River, which Jordan controlled. Now, you
0: could be forgiven for needing to rewind on that one. This was the beginning of the decades-long Arab-Israeli conflict. During this period, many Jews in Arab-majority countries fled or were expelled, and they arrived in Israel. The population went up a lot in terms of Jews in Israel. Then something happened which transformed the conflict, because in 1967, Israel and the neighboring
6: Arab states fought another war, the Six-Day War. When it ended, Israel had seized the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank from Jordan, and both Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. Israel was now occupying the Palestinian
0: territories, including all of Jerusalem, leaving Israel responsible for governing the Palestinians. In 1978, Israel and Egypt signed the U.S.-brokered Camp David Accords, and Israel gave Sinai back to Egypt as part of that peace treaty. But this was hugely controversial in the Arab world, and the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated partly because of that deal. This marked the beginning of the end of the wider Israeli conflict, and other Arab states gradually made peace with Israel, even if they didn't sign actual peace deals. But Israel's military was still occupying the West Bank and Gaza. The PLO formed in the 1960s to, form a, to seek a Palestinian state and they used all sorts of violence, including terrorism, against Israel
6: to meet their end. Initially, the PLO claimed all of what had been British Palestine, meaning it wanted to end the state of Israel entirely. Fighting between Israel and the PLO went on for years, even including a 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon to kick the group out the of the The stillness
3: of the ceasefire in southern Lebanon was shattered today by the sound of guns, bombs, and planes.
6: The PLO later said it would accept dividing the land between Israel and Palestine, but the conflict continued. As all of this was happening, something dramatic was changing in the Israel-occupied Palestinian territories. Israelis were moving in. These people are called settlers. In the late 1980s, Palestinian
0: frustrations erupted into the Intifada, that means uprising. It became really violent and Israel responded with heavy force.
6: Around the same time, a group of Palestinians in Gaza, who considered the PLO too secular, too compromise-minded, created Hamas, a violent extremist group dedicated to Israel's destruction. By the early 1990s, it's clear that Israelis and Palestinians have to make peace. The leaders from both sides signed the Oslo Accords. This is meant to be the big first step toward Israel maybe someday withdrawing from the Palestinian territories and allowing an independent Palestine.
0: Now, the Oslo Accord had established the Palestinian Authority, and that allowed Palestinians some degree of freedom to govern themselves. But members of Hamas didn't like the deal, and they launched suicide bombing to sabotage the process, while the Israeli right started to call for an end to peace talks, calling Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin a traitor and a Nazi. Soon after that peace accord was signed, Rabin was assassinated by the Israeli far right. Negotiations meant to hammer out the final details, just dragged on for years, and then there was a big failed Camp David summit in 2000, and another intifada began, much more deadly than the first one, killing about a 1,000 Israelis and 3,000 Palestinians. At this point, the mood shifted. Uh, Israelis became less tolerant uh, of the Palestinians and wanting to seek peace
6: overall. That year, Israel withdraws from Gaza. Hamas gains power, but splits from the Palestinian Authority in a short civil war, dividing Gaza from the West Bank. Israel puts Gaza under a suffocating blockade, and unemployment rises to 40%. This is the state of the conflict as we know it today. It's relatively new, and it's unbearable for Palestinians. In the West Bank, more and more settlements are smothering Palestinians often respond with protests and sometimes with violence, though most just want normal lives. In Gaza, Hamas and other violent groups have periodic wars with Israel.
0: Okay, so that was a summary of how Vox, the left-wing news site, uh, backgrounds the whole Israel-Palestine thing. And after that, their explainer video becomes pretty heavily laced with language designed to influence us to see the Palestinians as 100% victims and the Israelis as the big meanies. This might explain why so many kids and lefties seem so confident about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in all of this, but it is much more complicated. So now let's check out the right-wing side PragerU for their explainer on the whole thing.
7: After the breakup of the Ottoman Empire following World War I, Britain took control of most of the Middle East, including the area that constitutes modern Israel. Seventeen years later, in 1936, the Arabs rebelled against the British, and against their Jewish neighbors. The British formed a task force, the Peel Commission, to study the cause of the rebellion. The commission concluded that the reason for the violence was that two peoples, Jews and Arabs, wanted to govern the same land. The answer, the Peel Commission concluded, would be to create two independent states, one for the Jews and one for the Arabs, a two-state solution. The suggested split was heavily in favor of the Arabs. The British offered them 80% of the disputed territory, the Jews the remaining 20%. Yet, despite the tiny size of their proposed state, the Jews voted to accept this offer. But the Arabs rejected it and resumed their violent rebellion. Rejection number one. Ten years later, in 1947, the British asked the United Nations to find a new solution to the continuing tensions. Like the Peel Commission, The UN decided that the best way to resolve the conflict was to divide the land. In November 1947, the UN voted to create two states. Again, the Jews accepted the offer. And again, the Arabs rejected it. Only this time, they did so by launching an all-out war. Rejection number two. Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria joined the conflict. But they failed. Israel won the war. And got on with the business of building a new nation. Most of the land set aside by the UN for an Arab state—the West Bank and East Jerusalem—became occupied territory—occupied not by Israel, but by Jordan. Twenty years later, in 1967, the Arabs, led this time by Egypt and joined by Syria and Jordan, once again sought to destroy the Jewish state.
0: Okay, so that was the 1967 conflict that they called the Six Day War that we already learned about in the other video. Israel won stunningly, despite all the odds being against them. And Jerusalem, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip all fell into Israel's hands. Now, David Brog goes on to explain that half the Israeli government actually wanted to return the West Bank to Jordan and the Gaza to Egypt in exchange for peace. The other half of the government wanted to give it back to the region's Arabs, who'd begun referring to themselves as the Palestinians in the hope that they'd ultimately build their own peaceful state there. But then this happened. A few months later, the Arab League met in Sudan and
7: issued its infamous three no's. No peace with Israel. No recognition of Israel. No negotiations with Israel. Again, a two-state solution was dismissed by the Arabs, making this rejection number three. In 2000, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak met at Camp David with Palestinian Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat to conclude a new two-state plan. Barak offered Arafat a Palestinian state in all of Gaza and 94 percent of the West Bank, with East Jerusalem as its capital. But the Palestinian leader rejected the offer. In the words of U.S. President Bill Clinton, Arafat was, "...here 14 days and said no to everything." Instead, the Palestinians launched a bloody wave of suicide bombings that killed over 1,000 Israelis and maimed thousands more—on buses, in wedding halls, and in pizza parlors. Rejection number four. In 2008, Israel tried yet again. Prime Minister Ehud Olmert went even further than Ehud Barak had, expanding the peace offer to include additional land to sweeten the deal. Like his predecessor, the new Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, turned the deal down. Rejection number five. In between these last two Israeli offers, Israel unilaterally left Gaza, giving the Palestinians complete control there. Instead of developing this territory for the good of its citizens, the Palestinians turned Gaza into a terrorist base from which they have fired thousands of rockets into Israel. Each time Israel has agreed to a Palestinian state, The Palestinians have rejected the offer, often violently. So if you're interested in peace in the Middle East, maybe the answer is not to pressure Israel to make yet another offer of a state to the Palestinians. Maybe the answer is to pressure the Palestinians to finally accept the existence of a Jewish state.
0: That's Prager University, the conservative education channel, and the presenter and writer of that piece was David Brog, who's executive director of the Maccabee Task Force. So that's our look at two different takes on the situation. Somehow there needs to be a resolution of this mess that gives the Palestinians some dignity and autonomy, ensures Israel's right to exist and live in peace, and most of all, prevents the needless deaths of people and children on both sides. (music) Phew, okay, we need some comedy after all that. Now, you may be familiar with the Twitter queen, Titania McGrath, the super-woke guru of inner-city London. She's a creation of the brilliant comedian, writer, and social commentator Andrew Doyle. Well, Titania emerged from Twitter to take the stage last year at Comedy Unleashed in London. Here's a slice of that performance. Titania is played by Alice Marshall, and the script is by Andrew Doyle. (laughs)
4: I'm also hay racial which means that my racial identity tends to fluctuate with the pollen count. <laughs> now, I really think that if white people want to understand their privilege, they really need to try identifying as black every once in a while.
6: <laughs>
4: well, I have been identifying as black since February, and honestly, the prejudice I have experienced is just horrific. <laughs> You would not believe the looks of disapproval that I get from people whenever I tell them that I'm a person of (laughs) colour. I've been led to believe that this is some sort of comedy night. Um, So you're probably expecting me to stand up here telling loads of hate jokes. That's the kind of thing that goes on here, isn't it? Well, let me be the first one to tell you that when men say women aren't funny, I take that as a compliment. Because humour is a patriarchal construct. (laughs) feminist. And actually, I really do admire this new brand of super feminist comedians who are, like, totally subverting the genre by making sure that it doesn't actually make anyone laugh. I mean, I think we've all become pretty politically disillusioned at the moment. Um, So, like, I, for instance, have always voted Labour. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I know people say, Labour's got a massive problem with anti-Semitism at the moment, but I'm just like, like, chill out, guys. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, don't get me wrong. I think Jews are great. I think, great. I do. I do. I think Jews are great. I think they're really smart and cunning. No, seriously, they're great. Jew stuff, like bagels, like gummy, Like, um, Barbara Streisand, she's really cool. Um, oh, I've even read that Anne Frank novel. Yeah. You know the one, it's a bit- It's about the girl that gets stuck in a
6: cupboard.
4: (laughs) It's really good, you should try it. Um, But the thing is, as much as I love Jeremy Corbyn, um, I can't quite get past the fact that he is just a straight white male. So, um, I think that if Labour really want to succeed, they should get a new leader. Like, preferably a queer woman of colour. Um, Someone like Diane Abbott. (laughs) Um, So my activism, um, because it's something that's really important to me. Um, there's supposed to be a lighting change, but I'm guessing it's a straight white male behind the airplane. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that little ratty one come up here to try and sit to the <laughs> man spinning how to work my own laptop. Don't worry, the police have been called. <laughs> yeah, so activism is very, very important to me. Um, last year I spent some time in Namibia, um, helping poor Africans. <laughs> Teach them all about the importance of exceptional feminism. <laughs> because honestly, they absolutely live for that stuff over there. They're so super
2: interested in it.
0: Um... That is Titania McGrath emerging from Twitter to take the stage at Comedy Unleashed in London. Titania is played by Alice Marshall. That's not Alexandra Marshall, don't get them confused. Very very clear on that one Uh, the script was by andrew doyle and you know where to find the link to the full video as always that is it for our show this week please make sure you join me and discernibles matt wong for a very special show next week that's going to have a really different look and feel when the people's project matthew's show meets the other side in a once-off special crossover episode it should be a lot of fun we'll be coming to you from our melbourne studio So please remember to tell your friends about the show and subscribe everywhere you can and share, share, share. We need all the support we can get in this crazy time of big tech censorship. Hope you have a great week and don't let the woke kids get you down.